Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're Mumbrella listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Vivian Kelly. Joining me to break down your week in media and marketing is Mumbrella reporter Brittany Rigby. Hello. And our guest CEO of PhD, Mark Code. Welcome. Thank you. This week, we'll be discussing... Win Axe's five newsrooms. Should Seven ditch the super switch? The city of Sydney enters the outdoor war. And is culture a competitive advantage? But first, let's get to know this week's guest, Mark Code. Mark heads up the Omnicom Media Group media agency PhD in Australia, which has posted some pretty big wins recently, including nabbing the Virgin Australia media account. Mark. What else has been going on for you guys at PhD this year? Uh, it's been very. It's been a really busy start to the year. Actually, we've probably had more pitches this year so far, certainly than the start of any other year. Um, so yeah, there's a, there seems to be a lot of movement out there at the moment. Fortunately, none of it's ours, which is a nice place to be. So it's all upside. And like all these periods, you know, when you go through a period of heavy pitching, it's always nice to come up with something and we're, we're absolutely thrilled with Virgin Australia. They're, they're a wonderful client. Um, it was a really good match actually, uh, not just in terms of capabilities but values as, as people and, yeah, we're really looking forward to kicking off on 1 July. Now, you're based down in Melbourne but you're obviously up here in Sydney with us this week and you're here quite a lot. Yep. Is your sense that more pitch activity is happening in Melbourne or in Sydney at the moment? Uh it's probably Melbourne. It is Melbourne, actually. I, 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 there's no real reason for that. I think it's just timing. I think it's just a coincidence that there's a few in Melbourne that uh, either their contracts are renewed and they're looking to market or for whatever reason they're they're out and about. But, but, but it's hard to pick that. Sometimes it's an even spread. Sometimes it's a very Sydney focus. Um, the last little while, there, there was a, there's been quite a bit in Sydney, but the last little while it's definitely been a Melbourne focus. And is winning the Virgin Australia media account what you would class as your biggest achievement for this year so far or is there something else that you're more proud of? Um, in, in terms of growing our business and attracting new clients, yeah, definitely. Definitely our best achievement. And it's really nice to win um, a really, you know, good um, local advertiser and local brand. You know, we, we've we've had some success locally. We've also enjoyed success because of the strength of our global network. Um, it's nice to win one in our own right. Uh, so we chatted on the podcast last week about Matt Baxter's ditch the pitch proposal. Uh, what are your thoughts about his ditch the pitch? Um, there's definitely something to it. You know, I, I, I wouldn't say I'm a fully subscribed member of the ditch the pitch movement <laughs> just yet, but um, but I, you know, it's a it's a heavy toll on our business. There's no question about that, and the often the amount of work that we're asked to do is significant. Um, it can often be out of kilter with the size of the prize. Um, yeah, it's a big process. But at the same time, clients are entitled or even, you know, it's incumbent upon them to find the best possible partner. You know, the, for, for many of our clients, the media invoice is the single biggest invoice they sign off on a monthly basis. So, you know, they've got to get that right. So, um, so there's definitely a balance to be had, you know. I don't think we're going to stop pitching anytime soon. I don't think the industry is going to change anytime soon, but there's probably a equilibrium to be restored between what we need to put forward versus what the potential outcome is. What does it take for you at PhD to say no to a pitch? 
Um, there's a few reasons we'd say no. We've said no a couple of times actually this year, um, respectfully. Uh, sometimes it's just bandwidth. So with the, with the number of pitches going on, we, we will try and prioritise where we can. Uh, where where will we do our best work? Uh, what's our best opportunity to win? Um, so you know, sometimes it's just capacity. It's literally capacity, and we've we've done that at least twice this year that I can think of. Um, sometimes it's on alignment of values, whether we think that we're aligned. Sometimes you know we'll, we'll walk out of a, an initial meeting and. Often, both the client and ourselves might know that we're we're not compatible. You know, we we're not going to be liked by everybody. Um, sometimes it's terms. Sometimes we um, we will seek to get a reasonable reward for our efforts, and if we don't think we can achieve that, uh, we won't do it. So, one of the things that Matt Baxter called out at Mumbrella Three Hundred and Sixty was the length of payment terms and how much they're growing for some clients. And he gave you guys a shout out on stage for for saying no to unreasonable payment terms. Is that a real problem with some clients having really unreasonable expectations about how long they can take to pay you for your services? Um, it's worrying. It's a bit of a one-way street, isn't it? I mean, it's a, you know, if I was a, if I was a procurement-led client, um, adding days to my payment terms is a fairly easy win when it comes to saving money. Um, it's it's pretty easy to push them out. It's a long road back. You know, it is a one way street. Um, you know, I don't know how we retrieve that. Um, payment terms in, in isolation aren't necessarily a problem. You know, if we're getting rewarded adequately and there's remuneration to cover the costs of money uh, under those scenarios, we'd look at it. Um, but you know, if we're a very high turnover business, and for the percentage. Uh, our revenue represents of that turnover. It's actually quite small, smaller than most industries. Um, so you know, often, often we don't we don't have the, the the capital. We don't have the funds to to fill that gap. You know, often we need the money in before it goes out. And with some agencies taking a stand and saying, "Look, we're not going to pitch for this business because it's got ridiculous payment terms," or "We're not going to say yes to that." What does it then say about the business that does say yes to that because I think some agencies will try to take a stand, but there's always one that's going to take the business that's going to say yes. So I guess what does that say about the state of the industry and, and the agency that accepts terms that aren't really acceptable? Um, I mean, at the end of the day, that that's their prerogative. They'll do – they don't need to justify that to us. They'll, they'll do whatever they, they want to do and whatever their stakeholders either want them or allow them to do. I've been saying for some time – as as is me, I'm not the only one. Um, I mean, I, I remember the last time we had a deep conversation around this was when the Mark Pritchard PNG thing came up. I think that was around a year ago. I sat on a panel with Sunita at PwC at the time. Uh, Hawks, Peter Horgan actually sat in front of the AAA and said a very similar thing. Um, and the sentiment to that was that if we're going to – there's an interrelationship between this and the whole transparency conduct issue, right? So – if we're going to fix that up, there's a shared responsibility there. We've got a responsibility, but clients have got a responsibility. Um, you can't be a client and procure your suppliers into an unprofitable corner and expect them to conduct themselves appropriately. They have to be drawing money from somewhere. And, you know, if I'm not for a second suggesting that anyone who wins clients like that, that's how they operate, but um, there's a shared responsibility across the industry 
to ensure that adequate remuneration is provided for effort. And Brittany, you're quite new to reporting in this space Mm -hmm. and getting your head around who's who in the zoo and who who's who in the holding group companies as well. How are you finding getting your head around this industry and what's what's going on? Um, it's a minefield in one <laughs> word. I feel like you get across it one week and then someone or something changes. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the the actual structure itself is difficult enough, but then the turnover and the changes and the churn rate is really difficult to keep up with for sure. So speaking of holding groups, Mark, there is definitely a sense that globally they're under pressure and, you know, that things are things are changing. What about locally? How do you think the local industry is going? Do we – so many people say to me we have too many agencies. Do you agree with that sentiment? I don't think we have too many agencies. I mean, it, it, often often the biggest driver of, eight, of the number of agencies is, is, is conflict. I mean, there are – generally more competitors in most competitive sets and there are agencies to look after them. And while clients remain quite sensitive to that, and by and large they they probably should be, we're going to need agency brands to, to handle them. I don't, I don't think there's too many. It goes back to my comment before. If there's, if there's adequate remuneration to reward everyone appropriately for their efforts, then there's not too many agencies. And the other thing that people say there's too many of, and, and I've got to be careful here, is awards programs and indeed industry bodies as well. So this week we had ADMA bringing back its ACE awards after a year off, and we've obviously had the MFA return with their awards program as well, and media agencies coming back to the trade titles uh, awards programs. But whenever we do a story about any of these, whether it's ours, whether it's the industry bodies, there are some commenters that say there's just too many awards and there's just too many industry bodies and we don't know what to do. There needs to be some consolidation there. Do you agree with that sentiment in terms of awards and industry reps? Um, I do agree there's too many awards. I do agree with that. I think that, um, you know, we've all got a reception full of some trophies from somewhere, you know, that, that's, that's almost a sort of a, a, a cost of entry. I think we need to determine what the premier rewards are because we can all put a strap line on an email address that shows that we're something, something this and we've won something, something there. Um, and I think what we've tried to do, I think um, this is certainly what the MFA is endeavouring to do, is to is to restore some premier, premier awards, you know, where if you win one of these, you're genuinely recognised as best practice in this industry. Um, so if there, are, if there are awards that are helping to drive that agenda rather than just another trophy, and I, look, I understand that um, there are a lot of organisations, the trade press particularly, who um, they need to run award programs like this because that's become the model. You know, we're not paying for the content we read from Umbrella every day. You know, you have to source revenue from somewhere to pay your salary. Um, and I imagine awards play a very big role in that. So I, there's, a, there's definitely a need for them in, in that capacity. Otherwise, we can... We can all subscribe to your to your service, um, but yeah, I think the challenge is understanding the genuine premier awards in this industry. And I think you know it's paid dividends for us. We made an effort um, after the um, the media agency move last year to seek recognition beyond our own industry. I think we could all do a little more of that. You know, we we tend to operate in a bit of a bubble, 
Um, but to peg ourselves against other corporations in this country or in the world in terms of best practice around, well, we'll, we'll talk about it, culture or talent management or uh, or innovation, I think that, that you know, that we could all probably pursue a little more of that. So not just being the best in our little Adland bubble, actually being the best in business or, or in the country. Correct. That's what our clients want to see. I mean, if we if I turned up and you know if you had a row of agencies sitting here all, all, all showing off their trophies from various <laughs> trade industry awards within agencies, clients don't really care about that. Yeah. And other than yourselves, which agency do you think is doing great work? Not just winning the most awards. <laughs> <laughs> um, who's doing well? Well, I often think about. Um, I often think who who would I most like to see on a. Sorry, who would I least like to see on a pitch list against us? You know, if we if we if we um if we're uh, um pursuing a, a, a potential new client, um, who else is on the list? You know, there are some agencies you see on the list that um, you don't mind seeing there, and there there are others that you know you've we've we've got a we've got a job on our hands to to overcome them. I'm reluctant to tell you who they are. <laughs> Maybe when the mics are off, you can tell me because it would probably give your competitors too much joy yes. if you said that seeing them on the pitch list struck fear in your heart. So maybe we won't <laughs> give them that satisfaction so publicly. Um, but now we might move on to the news of the week. So this week, regional media player Wynn announced it was axing five newsrooms in Orange, Wagga Wagga, Albury, Dubbo and Wide Bay, which covers Harvey Bay and Bundaberg. Brittany, you were tasked with doing this story this morning. How many people is it being reported might lose their jobs as a result of this? Yeah, so reports are saying that between 30 and 45 uh, camera operators, editors, journalists will be affected. Um, Wynne is saying that they're going to try and redeploy those people into other parts of the business. Um, but yeah, a lot of, a lot of jobs being affected. So staff have been told that they will not have jobs from next Friday, the twenty eighth of June. And Wynn has sort of cited, as you know, all media outlets do when they do cutbacks, the commercial viability of funding news in these areas. Brittany, did they cite anything else for for what's going on? Yes, they also said that um, content consumption habits have changed, and that means that digital content providers are direct competitors as well as obviously other traditional news outlets um, and that's a reason they're saying that they've also had to close these newsrooms. So if you read their quotes, for me, what, what jumped to mind was, you know, they cited digital content providers and and the changing market. That sort of seemed like perhaps it was a another thinly veiled swipe at the likes of Facebook and Google for changing how consumers are accessing news. Mark, do you think that regional media can survive in in the current terms what's your view of how the regional media market is tracking um just on the topic of news i I do think it's a shame i think um i think you know ask brian gallagher and his boomtown um you know he's reminding us at the moment and doing a great job with the regional media operators that there's a significant proportion of Australians who live in regional areas, mm. often in urban environments. You know they they deserve the same kind of coverage of their local community as the rest of us. Um, and I believe in that. I grew up in regional Victoria. I um, yeah, I, I think it's a shame that they they take those services out and essentially centralise them to metro metro centres. So you mentioned the Boomtown Initiative, which is a number of media outlets 
coming together and, and Brian Gallagher from Southern Cross Stereo sort of pushing the validity of media agencies and brands putting their money into the regional markets. How much regional media do you guys do or is that too sort of case-by-case basis? Oh, I, look, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. Um, but I do know that, um, you know, regional it's, – it's interesting actually, isn't it? I was talking about this with Brian only, only very recently. Um, the regional – TV Marketing Bureau, I think it was called in a in a original carnation, used to do an awesome job at reminding media planners that a significant proportion of Australians, as I said, live in regional markets. And I can't remember the stat at the time, but I think regional southern and New South Wales was bigger than the market of Adelaide. But we tend to gravitate towards a five mainland cap, and then you know we we add regionals at a later date, where I think we could take a far more sophisticated approach to you know market size market opportunity and cost they're, they're probably on a cpm basis a fair bit cheaper than the metro markets and look zoe who does our buttons here in the podcast and unfortunately doesn't have a mic in front of her i know that she is from orange but i know that people like zoe growing up would have been affected by these things changing so i think i think you're right mark that it is a shame yeah and i'm like mark and zoe and grew up outside of sydney um and local news is the lifeblood of communities and it's definitely a real shame to see critical news coverage that they won't be getting from metropolitan uh, newsrooms cut. All right, next up we have Seven's The Super Switch not being the ratings behemoth that Seven was hoping for. So after Nine's smash hit, Married at First Sight, was such a ratings giant, pulling over 1 million Metro viewers anytime at graced our screens, Seven's reality romance experiment, The Super Switch, isn't getting the same love from viewers. It's been scaled back to just once a week, which was much less than maths, and this week on its one outing, drew just 335,000 Metro viewers, down from last week's 381. Quick straw poll, Mark, Brittany, do either of you watch The Super Switch? Nope. No, <laughs> and I do watch The Love Islands and the maths of the world, but um, no, haven't, haven't been tempted. Mm-hmm. So, look, there is lots of whispers about about this, and it's important to note that even though uh, on Wednesday evening the Super Switch in the primetime slot did do quite badly, Seven did still manage to win the night on both a primary channel level and a network level. So I'm by no means suggesting that Seven is completely screwed. They're still doing quite well. It's just this program in particular, particularly after the success of Married at First Sight, has raised some questions so, Mark, some people are telling me that this show hasn't performed as well as Seven has promised to agencies. Now, you don't have to be specific name names or, or networks, but just talk us through what happens in these situations or how the process might work if a network promises you certain numbers and then it doesn't deliver those and so the ads that you've placed might not be getting the viewers that you hoped for. Um, well, unless you're a key sponsor that's rarely done on a program by program basis so you know from a media buyer's point of view there'd be a schedule constructed that's to deliver a certain a certain you know media metric whether that be reach or 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 whatever whatever the planning mechanism is um and if it's not achieved because of the um 
a couple of programs haven't pulled their weight, then that that we that is generally made good in some fashion. Um, so I'll, I'll, you know, seven wouldn't be happy with those there's, with those numbers. I wouldn't imagine so. But you got to cut a bit of slack too to the TV networks. I mean, there there was a time not long ago where um, they had a lot more money for production and programming. They used to make pilots by the dozens. <laughs> Um, they'd trial it, and if it worked, they'd run it, and they don't do that anymore. So you, every now and again, we're going to see a program where there's a there's probably an element of uh, of hail mary uh, when they put it up, <laughs> and sometimes they work really well, and sometimes they probably don't go to expectations. So, but I think we've got to cut them a bit of slack on that. So, Mark, you mentioned that TV is a different beast now than it was a couple of years ago. What is your sense of how TV is tracking in general at the moment? Because Kim Portrait and the team at Think TV are often credited with sort of somewhat turning around the narrative of TV dying and it not being a great place for marketers and agencies to put their dollars. So what do you think? Is is TV going okay or what's your perception agency side? Um, yeah, TV's more than okay. I, I mean, there's a... There's a significant role for TV with most advertisers, and that's not going to change anytime soon. You know, I think I think Kim did a great job uh, with the networks to remind the market that uh, you know we um, we we uh, we rushed the gate a little on uh, on online AV, uh, and there's still a significant role to play for TV. And you know, the empire struck back, um, and I think they did a good job to remind us all of that. To be honest with you. And speaking of TV, what's been your favourite TV show this year, Mark? Oh, um, I don't really have one. I, I, I don't, it's probably one of the uh, biggest frustrations of my lifestyle I have. I don't have a regular cadence, so I, I can't. I don't know I'm going to be home regularly enough to see a regular program. So I, I don't really have one. I think Brittany and I are just hanging out for oh, here the we go. Bachelor. That was a leading question, wasn't it? <laughs> Yeah, just The Bachelor, ha- Love Island UK's back. Oh, it's all happening. We've obviously got great taste. <laughs> <laughs> Next up, the city of Sydney enters the outdoor war. So the City of Sydney has applied to join the City of Melbourne in federal court action, which Telstra has initiated. It all comes down to a battle about advertising on payphones, of all things, and whether these fall within the council's jurisdiction or not. Are they low impact? Will they affect pedestrians? And, of course, there's that other question of how much money Telstra and its outdoor partner, JC Deco, would be somewhat potentially pinching from the outdoor assets of the councils themselves with these ads. It also comes at a time when the City of Sydney looks to cancel its own outdoor advertising tender and go direct to market to negotiate with outdoor operators. JC Deco had actually had that contract since 1997, but pulled out of the process earlier this year. It's all very complicated and for us, all very headline grabbing, which is quite bizarre. So Mark, outdoor has gotten so many headlines over the past 12 months. When did outdoor get so sexy and interesting? Most of the out-of-home companies have made a significant investment in infrastructure. So out of home probably got sexy when it started getting digital. To be honest with you, um, and the ability to that channel to be so much more adaptive and dynamic and all that kind of stuff. So, um, so yeah, I, I think that's when it started. I think that's why we've seen we've seen the last couple of years we've seen really strong growth of revenue into that into that part of the market. 
And for a while, it felt like while traditional media was getting a bashing for declining, you know, all the headlines were particularly around the SMI figures and whatnot, television being down, newspapers and magazines in particular had some really depressing figures, but it looked like outdoor was the shining star and the unexpected top performer with, even though it was obviously starting from a much lower base in terms of how much money was being placed with it, its numbers were often going up. Is that still the case? Is outdoor still tracking well? Uh, I think it's tracking pretty well. I'm not certain. I'm not saying it's not, but I'm not certain if it's tapping along at those the yeah. sorts of figures it's seen in the last couple of years. Um, and as I said, I think the reason for that is because they've been able they've, they've been able to attract new advertisers, more of them through their digital assets. Um, I mean, the other side of the equation, and again, I'm not sure what these figures are, but I wouldn't assume they're just kind of rolling in cash as a result of this growth. They've spent a lot of money on the infrastructure, um, and I to what extent, I don't know. Um, so, you know, I'd, I'd consider that as well. And do you have any issues with outdoor in terms of transparency? Because I know that often television, you know, we write about the TV ratings every single day. So sometimes the TV players can feel like, they're unfairly held to sort of account every single day in terms of what they're delivering and there's the radio ratings surveys that come out eight times a year and I think some people feel like outdoor doesn't have the same transparency or doesn't have the same accountability in terms of what it's delivering just because by its very nature you can't sort of measure it every day. What's your perspective on that and how sort of transparent and accountable outdoor is for those that are placing ads on that format? Um, I, I don't have a problem with that. I mean, there are mechanisms in place that if you buy um, an asset, a sign, an exposure, there are, asset, there, are, there are mechanisms in place to ensure you got what you paid for. So I, I don't, I don't harbour any concerns about that. Um, there's definitely a job to be done by out of home in terms of um, – consistency of currency. Um, I can buy one billboard with one provider and be on a rotation with, you know, half a dozen of my best advertising mates uh, and I can buy another one down the street and be on a rotation with 12 of my best friends. So, um, you know, we're doing a lot of work to build consistency into that currency. Um, I think that's probably the area of focus, to be honest with you. I, I don't see it too much around the transparency accountability space. Next up, Mark thinks culture is his competitive advantage. So, Mark, you penned a piece for us this week about the three things you'd do if you left PhD and started an agency from scratch. So the question has to be asked, first up, are you leaving PhD anytime soon? No, not unless I haven't been told something. <laughs> uh, but I, wasn't, I don't think I necessarily spoke about starting an agency from scratch either, so I'm not, not trying to fuel any speculation or anything there. Um, no, I, I mean, even if I went to another company, irrespective of where, but no, I'm not, I'm not planning on leaving anytime soon. So, Mark, you said in, in the piece, as was your headline, that, culture is your competitive advantage. So for anyone at home that hasn't read it, even though they should have, uh, talk talk us through what, what you mean by culture being your competitive advantage. Um, we're a service industry. So all we've really got to offer our clients is, is, is our people and their abilities. So um, we spend a lot of time trying to attract the best people we can attract. Um, and I think that starts with culture. 
the uh, the comment in there about you know six percent of this industry, six um, percent of jobs in this industry never get filled, which is a pretty amazing figure when you think through it. There's not many industries that uh, that would be the case. Um, so I think the only way that we're going to collectively be an attractive industry uh, and individually try and compete by attracting the best talent is to become great places to work, and that's that's where culture sits. So that percentage of roles that will never be filled and desks that will never be sat at, is that just because of churn in terms of young people coming into the industry and then running away from it and never coming back? Um there are people who come into the industry and realise it's not for them. I'd like to think they don't run out the door with their hair on fire. <laughs> um, but uh, there is a bit of that. Uh, but that's the responsibility is also ours to make sure that we're screening and selecting the best people that are aligned to what we think a media agency needs and what it can be for them. So we do, we do focus on that a lot. Um, but, um, yeah, look, I think it's a combination of a few things. I think the MFA do a great job promoting the industry as a as a, as a, as a as a place to embark on your career. Um, I think we could all do a better job bringing young people in and training them rather than, you know, looking at a vacancy um, and trying to poach someone from down the road. You know, I think if you've got less than, you know, 18 months, two years experience, um, it's easier to train them than to go and, to go and poach one. I think I think we, we could be a lot better at that as a, as a whole, as an industry. And we were chatting before we started recording, Mark, and you said you have a lot of people who work at PhD who you refer to as boomerangs. <laughs> Do you want to tell everyone at home what you mean by that and <laughs> and why that's the case? Uh, we've had a couple over the journey who, um, well, there's two. There's probably two types. There's there are people who have worked at PhD, and you know nothing's forever. So the, eventually they'll take a job offer, they'll go down the road somewhere, and they'll realise that not everywhere is like this. Um, so they've come back, and we um, we're pretty proud of that. Um, and you know when we when we when we come it comes to talk about our talent management our culture in um, in award submissions for example you know that uh, uh, they would feature um, for for obvious reasons um, there's also people you know we've got quite a few people at PhD that have only ever worked at PhD they've come in as, as graduates they've never seen any other environments and I'm not saying I'm not saying we do it you know that much better than anyone else but they they we have examples of where they've gone to environments and gone oh my god I thought. I thought it was all like this and it's not. Um, so, you know, again, that's pretty pleasing. And one of the big issues that's been getting a lot of attention over the past couple of years in particular uh, in this industry is sort of the mental health of the industry in general and the sorts of pressures that we put and the expectations that we have of our yep. staff. And you have an employee, uh, Chloe Hooper, who's written some opinion pieces for us about the importance of discussing mental health and how great you guys have been to her and to to other people as as they go through various things. How much is that on your radar with managing staff in terms of thinking about their well-being and their mental health beyond just the immediate task that they're working on? Uh, it's a big piece for us. In fact, Chloe's just done a mental health first aid course and she's trying to promote that across the whole industry at the moment. So there will be a piece on that pretty soon asking for help. Uh, and support from uh, from across the industry. So I hope I hope we lean into that. Um, I, th- I think it's huge. I really do. I think we have a level of responsibility to our guys to make sure that um, you know. Yes, we work hard. Yes, we have a lot of fun. But um, we, we we don't need to be breaking people on the way. That's not that's not good. Um, and I I think we could do better. But I also think that people. And again, I'm not I'm not. I'm not trying to make this about PhD. I'm not trying to be self-serving here, but I'm not. Literally an hour ago, a guy came up to my desk 
uh, at work and said he had a friend that worked at another agency um, who was on stress leave. You know, um, having having read the piece that I did this week, what uh, what advice would I give her? I said she should leave, she should resign because that's not how we ought to be treating people. And going back to the six percent vacancy rate, she if she made three phone calls, she'd have a job this afternoon. So there's always alternatives. That's quite a good note to end on, I think. <laughs> a, a sort of positive, positive in a way that there's there's always something else out there, and there's no need to get completely beaten down and and broken by this industry. If you have enjoyed this week's podcast or any of the podcasts that we've done over the past year or so that we've had it back, please do give us a star rating on whatever app you use and write us a glowing review. That would be fabulous. But for now, thank you, Brittany. Thanks. And thank you for joining us, Mark. You're welcome. 